Hi, it's Lisa Schumann with another episode of Donor Conception Conversations. And today we are lucky enough to have Dr. Eric Foreman. He's going to talk to us about all kinds of things that you'll find fascinating. He's going to dive deep into why it might be important to think about genetic screening with your donor and how it all evolved. You know, how did genetic screening evolve in the first place? I know we've talked a little bit about PGT screening and genetic screening with donors. Here he's going to dive in a little bit deeper into the history of it and how it's evolved and how it's safe and why it's safe so that you can feel rest assured if that's something that you want. He'll also talk about all different aspects of the process and the lab, and I think you'll find it really, really helpful. So grab a seat and join us. Welcome to Donor Conception Conversations. This is the one podcast created exclusively for people who are planning to use donor conception to build their family or for people who have already built their family with donor conception. I'm your host. My name is Lisa Schumann. I'm a researcher, a therapist, and an expert in donor conception. And over my more than two decades of experience working both in fertility clinics and in my private practice, the Center for Family Building, I've met with thousands of donor-conceived individuals, children, recipients, and donors. And I've learned so much, and I'm here to teach you all that I've learned in this podcast. My guests and I will talk about everything that you need to know to have a better journey to parenthood. If it's about donor conception, we're going to talk about it. And today on this podcast, we have the opportunity to speak with someone who's an expert in donor conception and PGTA, and he will tell you a little bit about that and some other things as well. His name is Eric Foreman, and he oversees the medical practice as well as the embryology and andrology laboratories at Columbia Fertility. He also sees patients with infertility and those seeking to preserve their fertility. Dr. Foreman has extensive clinical and laboratory research experience. He's published more than 40 articles in peer-reviewed journals on a wide range of topics in assisted reproductive technology. He has special interests in using PGT, pre-implantation genetic screening, to optimize IVF and improve selection for elective single embryo transfers. When not working, Dr. Foreman enjoys spending time with his wife and his children running, including completing the 2016 New York City Marathon, very impressive, with Team Every Mother Counts. It's wonderful. And learning how to play ice hockey and rooting for his favorite sports teams, the Mets, Knicks, Rangers, and the Duke Blue Devils. You can follow him on Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, or anywhere that you use social media. So thank you for joining us, Dr. Foreman. Oh, thanks. Thanks for that nice introduction. And makes me realize I should probably update it as it's the 2016 marathon was now seven years ago. And uh, since the pandemic, like a lot of people, I think I've shifted to using Peloton a oh. lot more than running. Mm-hmm. Also, my favorite sports teams left out the Knicks because they were kind of in a down period, but they're actually the one that's still alive now. So, um, so yeah, 2023 has been a good year so far. So um, I'm excited to be here and you know, thank you for all that you do, you know, speaking to individuals and couples that are struggling with infertility and or making the transition to using donor gametes or gestational surrogacy, you know, and beyond. I know it's sometimes a 
long-term, you know, connection that you have. So thanks for all that you do. And I'm, I'm happy to try to help, you know, discuss some of the, some of the hot topics in this area. Well, thank you so much. And it's so nice to see you. We've known each other for decades and um, it's great to see you here on this podcast. And I, I really appreciate everything you said and would really love to share you with our audience because I know you have a wealth of knowledge. Why don't we start maybe explaining to the audience some basics about genetic screening and what that what that's about? Yeah. So, I mean, I think when we you know think about genetics, um, there's different types of genetic screening or testing. So first there's carrier screening, which has changed a lot in recent years and is still evolving and, and varies from clinic to clinic in different parts of the country and different parts of the world. That's the idea where a couple or the egg and sperm source really you know, is being tested to try to minimize the risk of passing on a genetic condition. These are usually recessive conditions where you can be perfectly healthy and carry a mutation or a change in a gene that can cause it to not function properly. But because we get two copies of each gene, you know, two copies of each chromosome, in most cases, there's some exceptions. If we have one copy that, that's normal and one copy that's a mutation, we're healthy, we're a carrier. But if the egg source and the sperm source you know, both carry a mutation for the same recessive condition, that's where they can pass that on to the egg, to the sperm, each of those 50-50. So in general, one in four chance that a embryo and then resulting baby could have a genetic disease. And some of those could be my, mild, treatable things. Some could be very severe life-threatening thing. So so this idea has been around for a long time, but it's evolved where it used to be that we would just screen for maybe one or two conditions like cystic fibrosis, spinal muscular atrophy, or maybe if a couple or individual was of Ashkenazi Jewish background, there's panels that have evolved for those conditions. But now we have the availability to do what's called expanded carrier screening, where we can test for hundreds of mutations and regardless of ethnic background or if there's mixed ethnic background, it's kind of a pan-ethnic approach. And I think that has changed a lot where we, we offer that to all of our patients. Most sperm banks and egg banks have screened their donors with um, these type of panels so that the, um, you know, the patient that we're working with can use that to take into consideration when they're selecting a donor. But couples as well that are, you know, trying to conceive with their eggs and sperm, you know, we also recommend this. And sometimes people will say that they don't have anything in their family. Nobody's had any genetic conditions. But that's exactly the point that these things still happen. And when they do, it seems like it comes out of nowhere. And we think it makes sense to do before one is pregnant. Once you're pregnant, you know, that's already established and it's a lot more stressful to learn about genetic information in pregnancy. So that's carrier screening. Mm -hmm. Again, some some OBGYNs, you know, still only test for certain fundamental conditions or ethnic based and that's still acceptable. You know, most non, you know, the, the, the fertile population still a lot of times doesn't get this testing until they're pregnant. But I think there's an opportunity to do it before pregnancy or use it in selecting a donor. And with a donor, again, you also have the opportunity to, you know, avoid a, you know, a situation where there is that risk if you can select another suitable donor that doesn't carry a mutation that you carry. 
but it's also important to know that this doesn't include every single gene out there. There could be new mutations, so we can never 100% guarantee that you know a resulting child won't have some rare genetic condition, but we can minimize and almost eliminate the risk of hundreds of them, including some, you know, some well-known, very serious, and some very rare conditions. You know, if there's a reason where that sperm and egg source have to be used together and there is this risk, or if one carries a condition themselves and they're then that's a, like a dominant condition where if they have a mutation on one gene, they have a disease and it's 50-50 that it goes to the egg or the sperm, that is a situation where we can offer what's called PGTM now, pre-implantation genetic testing for a monogenic or a single gene condition. So that's something I can talk more about. So that's that's kind of pre-pregnancy, pre-donor you know, selection screening. I think what you're also, you know, we're hinting at is what we now call PGTA or pre-implantation genetic testing for aneuploidies. Aneuploidy is the chromosome number. This used to be called PGS, pre-implantation genetic screening or comprehensive chromosome screening, CCS. We've mostly come to consensus to call it PGTA. And the idea there is we're actually testing the embryo before it gets transferred to the uterus to try to minimize the risk of chromosome abnormalities. When an embryo inherits an extra chromosome, it's more prone to result in a miscarriage or certain syndromes like Down syndrome, trisomy 13 or 18 are, are syndromes called Pateau and Edwards syndrome. If there's a missing chromosome, that's called monosomy. Most of those don't even result in pregnancy, but some can result in syndromes like Turner syndrome, which is 45X when an X is missing from a girl. So these are things that we can test for now very reliably, although it is controversial. I could explain a little bit more about how it works. But the idea there is that for any couple, anytime egg and sperm come together, there can be an error in the number of chromosomes that get passed down to the embryo, to the egg or the sperm or both. And then we're trying to select amongst embryos which one looks like it has the correct number of chromosomes. And again, that's just big picture. That doesn't get down to the level of specific genes. And you know, if we knew that a couple also is at risk of a genetic single gene condition, we can do both PGTA and PGTM. It's fantastic. It's amazing how much technology has changed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even you know, even the way that we test. So I sometimes give a personal example that I have three children and our first pregnancy, which was now like 18 years ago, my wife did carrier screening at that time, included cystic fibrosis and some Ashkenazi Jewish conditions, not this expanded panel. And was not a carrier for cystic fibrosis. Great. I didn't have to do any testing. And then by the time of our third child, we had moved different training locations. And rather than trying to track down records, they repeated some of those tests. And now she was a carrier for cystic fibrosis. Wow. How, is that, how is that possible? Well, back originally, they tested for like 23 mutations. And then, you know, about seven years, eight years later, they tested for 32 mutations. And she happened to have one of these carry one of these that was not in the earlier version but and then i had to be tested and 
you know, and wonder like, were we just lucky before or do I carry? I mean, even then I was carried for what was a broader test of like 97 mutations. And now fast forward, we sequence the gene routinely and can pick up hundreds of mutations. So it just shows that, you know, the gene hasn't changed, the mutations haven't changed, but before we were looking for specific genotype-specific mutations versus sequencing the whole gene. So the technology has improved, and that was just one gene, and now we're sequencing hundreds of genes routinely and getting a report with all of these different you know, genes and whether one is a carrier or not. And it's not uncommon. You know, Most patients will carry one or two, sometimes more things, so you have to know going into it that's okay, that's normal. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong. It's really looking at the couple together or, again, using that to select an appropriate source of egg or sperm. It's amazing. What an incredible story. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, we're lucky to live in this time now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. There have been some amazing advances. It's incredible. Well, thank you for sharing that personal story. I think everybody will appreciate that because I think people very often shrug it off as saying, well, you know, everybody gets pregnant at home who's fertile. Why can't I just not bother? But, you know, then, you know, if we kind of look at life like that, we'd all be walking around with malaria, right? So, you know, we, we want to use the whatever medicine and technology we can. And it also, um, it's just testing. It doesn't obligate you to do anything. Sometimes people will say, we wouldn't do anything anyway. We would continue the pregnancy. That's okay. No one is saying you have to do anything. But information is also useful. Sometimes there's children that are, you know, misdiagnosed or delayed diagnosis. So even just knowing that you're at risk, even if you wouldn't take advantage of PGTM or termination, if legal where you live, it's still information that could help your child get diagnosed and treated earlier. Or it may be hard to really, you know, fully, you know, make that decision without having all the information. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I think this type of testing should be offered to everyone, you know, is thinking about having a child one way or another. Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely agree. And can you explain to people who are afraid of it, what does it involve? Because this is, it's also changed, right? The way that we kind of test embryos has changed over time too. And people, I think, worry, is this going to harm the embryo? And, you know, it's changed quite a bit. Right. Can you explain a little bit about that? Well, so, I mean, the good news is that, you know, most couples will not carry anything in common, will not need to do PGTM, or will select a sperm donor or an egg donor that, you know, is genetically compatible. So so then the question is, like, do we want to test embryos for chromosome number? That is a complicated question, and I can describe what's involved. And this has changed, you're right, over the last 30 years, really. So current version of PGTA, how it's usually done is that, you know, eggs and sperm are combined together in the lab, embryos grow, and we typically culture embryos to what's called the blastocyst stage, where they'll become like a specialized little ball of cells where we can even tell which part become the baby, the inner cell mass, which part will become the outer layer or the trophectoderm. That outer layer is not, again, not the part that becomes the baby itself, but Again, working under sort of the theory that egg and sperm come together and contribute one copy of each chromosome if it's a normal fertilization. And then the cells divide into two and four and six. And each daughter cell should get 
the same genetic information, the same copy. So, I mean, there are again exceptions to that, but in the vast majority of cases, we think that those outer cells have the same genetic information as those inner ones that make the baby. So we take a biopsy of five to 10 cells from this outer layer, again, at a stage where the embryo has more than 100 cells. That biopsy gets placed in a tiny tube, and that tube gets typically shipped to a genetics lab that specializes in pre-implantation genetics. And the embryo gets frozen because now it's at day five, day six of development, and we don't know the result of that genetic testing. So then that genetics lab gets that that biopsy of cells, and there's DNA in each cell. And basically, those cells get lysed or kind of opened up. And that DNA, it's a very, very tiny amount. So this is something that's very specialized and different than just drawing blood and sending it to a lab and having lots of cells worth of DNA. We always, this has been a challenge in this field for the last 30 years. We're always dealing with tiny amounts of DNA, too tiny to just like look at directly. You can't look at the cells and see the chromosomes. You can't directly analyze that DNA. You have to amplify it to have enough to work with. So that DNA gets amplified, and then the genetics labs have different methods for what's called now next-generation sequencing off of that amplified DNA. And then there are bioinformatics algorithms to determine whether it looks like that embryo had the correct copy number of each chromosome or if there's an extra chromosome predicted or missing chromosome. So that's all done in a genetics lab while the embryo remains frozen at your IVF laboratory that you're working with. So that's one thing that, you know, freezing is pretty much standard now. So in earlier versions of pre-implantation genetic testing, embryos could be biopsied after three days of development when there might be six or seven or eight cells. But that involved taking one cell out of like six or seven and... We now think that that may have had a bigger impact or an impact. We're not sure if there's really a significant impact from the biopsy at the blastocyst stage, but at least one study I was involved in more than 10 years ago suggested that biopsying on day three may impact that embryo. We, we don't really know at that point what that cell is destined to become. Again, it's a larger portion of the embryo, and also it's only one cell's worth of DNA, not 10 cells. So it was an earlier stage, it might have had more of an effect on the embryo, and the accuracy was not as reliable, and there was a higher risk of not even getting a result because we only had one cell's worth of DNA. But back then, theoretically, if you could analyze that cell's DNA in-house or send to a genetics lab, it was possible to still do a fresh transfer a couple of days later. But even outside of PGT, our field has moved more and more towards freeze all of embryos and frozen embryo transfer for a variety of different reasons I can discuss. So I don't think that that's a major drawback, but that is one thing that, you know, in current versions, it requires culturing to blastocyst stage. If none of the embryos make it to the blastocyst stage, there's not any viable ones to biopsy. And then because of the time frame and the genetics labs being outside, it involves freezing the blastocyst and waiting for genetic results. So that's basically PGTA in a nutshell. And then 
the genetics lab will send the report to the physician who ordered it you know, for each embryo. And embryo number one may have the correct you know, two copies of each chromosome. And most labs will report even the sex, the genetic sex. And some clinics choose not to get that information. Some patients choose not to get that information, but that's available, you know, from the time of the biopsy. And then embryo number two may have trisomy 16, an extra chromosome 16. That's something that's very commonly found in miscarriages, and most clinics would not thaw and transfer that embryo. So that's the type of results that we get. And there's another category that's called mosaic, which has been a controversial area for several years that I could talk more about. That's kind of an intermediate where it doesn't quite fall within like three copies and not quite the normal two copies, somewhere intermediate. So some feel like we should call it an intermediate copy number. Some call it mosaic, but we don't really truly know that the embryo itself is mosaic. This is again, an analysis of amplified DNA from a biopsy of cells from an embryo, and that that copy number prediction falls within a range that could be explained by possibly having some cells be normal and some abnormal, but there also are other explanations. So those embryos, many IVF labs and clinics will transfer those embryos now. There's some who may still feel that they're abnormal and not, and years ago there were many who did not transfer those types of embryos, but we've learned a lot in recent years. Mm-hmm. So basically, you know, people are faced with this, yes, there are good embryos, no, there are other embryos that are not good, and then there's this kind of middle ground, possibly. But with, with an egg donor, for example, you, as opposed to a sperm donor with an early, a, a older egg, when you have a younger egg, it's, it's probably more likely that you'll have more good embryos that are kind of clearly healthy, right? Correct, correct. So by far the biggest like predictor of whether the embryo is normal or not is the age of the egg source. So we know that as women get older, not only do they use more and more of their follicle egg reserve, but the quality changes. And one measure of quality is the genetic status. So they, all the eggs that a girl is born with are in her ovaries from before she's born maybe a couple million of them, they gradually get used up. And somehow, like through the late 20s, early 30s, most of them that are ovulated divide their chromosomes normally. Not all. So even a woman in her 20s can make an error in meiosis, which is called when the egg matures and divides its chromosome. Basically, it got she got a chromosome number one from her mom and her dad down the line to chromosome number 22 and then two X's for a female genetically. And that at the time of ovulation or maturing, you know, in IVF trigger, those chromosomes divide. And as a woman gets into her late 30s and early 40s, it really shifts dramatically where we get to a point that a majority of the eggs divide their chromosomes abnormally. And by the mid 40s, like the vast majority divide their chromosomes incorrectly. Most of those just can't result in an embryo that even implants. Some of them miscarriages, some of them like aneuploidy syndromes like we talked about earlier. So egg donors are usually screened to be in their mid to late 20s, sometimes early 20s, sometimes early 30s. 
But if it's a non-directed donor, usually the upper limit is around 30. If it's a directed donor, like a friend, a family member, that's a different situation. They sometimes are in an older age group, just depends. Um, but in the mid to late 20s, again, that's considered sort of peak fertility. And the vast majority of those eggs like, should be able to divide their chromosomes correctly. So we would expect about 85% of the embryos, the blastocysts resulting from egg donation to be chromosomally normal, to not have an extra or missing chromosome. And so then it's really a personal decision. I mean, if, if so that means sometimes they're all normal and the testing doesn't change anything. So some would say, why biopsy these embryos, which I think is safe and I think studies have shown is safe, but it's still a procedure that doesn't make the embryo better. We think at best it's neutral, but it's theoretically possible. Sometimes it has an effect. And there's a cost associated with biopsying and then genetic analysis of each embryo. So if they all come back normal, you know, didn't change anything, didn't make them normal, didn't make them better, why do that testing? And that's a valid argument. On the other hand, sometimes they're abnormal. And, you know, with all that it takes to get to that point, some individuals or couples just want to know more about the genetics. There, there are reasons why. But an important thing is that this is a complicated process and there are different methods for how genetics labs amplify DNA and sequence and analyze. There was actually a really interesting study just in the last few months that looked at data from one of the large frozen egg banks in the U.S. And they looked at patients that received eggs from their egg bank and thawed them and made embryos with the plan of doing PGTA. And they send eggs to all different kinds of clinics, and those clinics work with different PGT labs. And they looked at you know the four largest or the labs that were used the most, and they looked at the proportion of embryos that were abnormal and they saw actually a significant difference that some labs were reporting higher rates of abnormal embryos. And wow. again, it's the most likely explanation for that is that there's differences in the data analysis, the DNA amplification, sequencing, and analysis. I mean, some would say maybe there's other, other lab you know, factors, but given that these all came from the same egg bank, with donors that were sort of screened and selected the same way, um, it seemed to suggest that there's not, you know, that not all PGT labs are the same. So I think it's important, you know, if one is doing PGT to really try to work, you know, with a lab that has very validated methods and doesn't hopefully overcall abnormal. So that's been a concern. Once the embryo gets a diagnosis of aneuploidy, that it looks like it has an extra missing chromosome, most clinics will not transfer that embryo. There are some that are willing to try, but again, usually at that point, that's why we've moved away from the screening terminology because it's really you know, used as a test or diagnostic fashion that you get an abnormal result. There's not another test that's done. It's typically viewed as abnormal and not transferred. So again, the proportion of embryos that are abnormal from donors in their 20s 
should be something like 15 to 20 percent. And that kind of fits with if we look at success rates of donor egg, that when embryos are transferred one at a time, around 50 percent of them make a baby. And when we know an embryo is normal, generally about 60% of them make a baby. So you know, if genetic labs are reporting like 30, 40, 50% abnormal, it doesn't quite fit with like the experience that we've had for a long time with transferring embryos from donor egg in that age group. Well, you know, that that brings me to an idea that I think a lot of people have some confusion about because when you're looking at screening, I would imagine most of those cases are with embryos that are coming from either a known donor or from like a fresh donor, meaning not from an egg bank. So when people mm-hmm. go to an egg bank, I'm assuming that our audience has varying you know, levels of interest in egg banks and understanding about what they're about, but you get fewer eggs. And so then the question becomes, well, I have so few eggs anyway to work with. What should I do? Yeah, and you would think, I mean, that, I think that's very logical. And I have that discussion when I speak to patients or couples that we're working with that if you're working with a fresh donor, which some clinics don't do anymore, it's a lot of logistics and it's complicated, but basically that donor might produce 20 eggs, 25 eggs. And all of those eggs would go to the recipient and they would be fertilized, all of them fresh or some clinics split between multiple recipients. And so you typically, you might have 20 eggs and then you might produce eight, nine, 10 blastocysts. But from a donor egg bank, you have the ability to look at you know different profiles. The eggs are already there. It's not being done in real time. It could be quicker. There's, there's advantages to each approach you typically get a lot of around six eggs. Some people will purchase two lots and have more eggs to work with, but you're probably not going to have 20 or 25 or 30 eggs. And there's variability from those six eggs. All six might survive warming. All six might fertilize and four might make blastocysts. And that's a really good result. Or it might be that four survive and three fertilize and one makes a blastocyst. And that still might make a baby, but you don't have as many extras. So, you know, why would one choose to do pre-implantation genetic testing, you know, when working with an egg donor, a non-directed in this age group? I think there's some, you know, valid reasons to consider. Some couples really want to know the sex or even have input, but you're right. If you're working with six eggs, you might not have, you know, selection. It might be two blastocysts and they're both female or they're both male or whatever versus if you make eight or nine or ten blastocysts you know then it's more likely you'll have normal ones of each sex and if there's some reason why that's important you know that's the reason why you might consider working with a fresh egg donor or maybe getting more than one lot of eggs there's also you know some of our patients have been through so much you know treatment and miscarriages and or other abnormal pregnancies. And even if you tell them the risk is very, very low, they want to further minimize that. And I think for that reason, it it should be offered. I don't think we should say, no, you can't or shouldn't. I think we should just, again, go with what data is known. It's usually not going to change you know, the selection. It's not been shown to improve the success. 
because we're, again, we're already dealing with a group of embryos that mostly are normal anyway. But, you know, again, I think it's reasonable in that scenario because you could get unlucky. I think for patients working with a gestational carrier, that's a situation where even when using egg donation, I strongly recommend PGTA because that's a situation where we really want to do everything we can to maximize success and minimize risk as well. Like we really don't want anyone to have to experience a miscarriage that's due to a genetically abnormal pregnancy, but especially someone who's, you know, helping you to, you know, carry a pregnancy and deliver and maybe in another state where we're not managing, you know, the pregnancy. Also, in light of, you know, changes regarding abortion, you know, law and availability, that's, you know, it's rare, again, it's rare that someone in her 20s has an ongoing aneuploid pregnancy, but it happens sometimes. And again, gestational carriers come from all different kinds of states. And again, I think reproductive lawyers, you know, are, will factor all of this in. But again, I think trying to minimize the risk of an abnormal pregnancy is, even if it's very low, to try to make it even lower is reasonable. And so I, I recommend PGTA even in donor egg for those using a gestational carrier. Those not using a gestational carrier, I don't recommend it. I offer it. And if those who really have a reason that they really want to do it, I agree like that's a group that maybe should get you know more than one lot of frozen eggs or consider a fresh donor if that's feasible. So just to back up on one point that you mentioned because I'm not sure everyone's aware of this that you know we're looking at you know all of these stages right there's nutrition and fertilization so when you only get six eggs they have to thaw because they're coming frozen it's not like you're you're cycling a fresh a fresh donor so already you're you're you have a smaller amount to work with right and then of course you have to worry about are they going to survive fertilization and 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 then then you're left with fewer embryos than let's say a fresh donor mm-hmm. right and so um, you know i think a lot of people would be interested to to understand that a little bit because it is hard for people to decide, should I use frozen? Should I use fresh? You know, what is the difference? And I think you also brought up this issue of, you know, the emotional implications when you've had losses, when you feel very distressed, when you go through fertility treatment, maybe you do feel like you want backup embryos, you want extra embryos just in case, or for multiple children, or if you're a Mm -hmm. same-sex male couple, right, you want to fertilize with both sperm, you might need extra eggs to to work with, right? So that Mm -hmm. probably is part of the equation as well. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of factors, I think, you know, if a couple wants more than one child, you know, together with the use of donor egg, again, that's another situation where having more eggs is going to make it helpful. We know that when even when everything is ideal, not every high-quality embryo makes a baby, even if it's from donor egg, even if it's genetically normal, maybe it's 60% of them. So, you know, if you want two or three children and you ideally want them to all come from the same egg source, I would like to have four, five, six normal blastocysts. And that's highly unlikely, not impossible, but unlikely from six eggs. But it's 
likely or probable from 20 fresh eggs. So, so I, I think we look at, you know, but if someone is 49 or 50 years old and wants one pregnancy, one delivery, doesn't matter what sex that baby is, you know, that's a great candidate to use frozen donor eggs. So really, again, it's just important to think it through and you know, work with your doctor, your clinic, the third party team, and not rush into it. I think there's, you know, obviously patients who've gone through infertility or waited a long time can be, you know, impatient and want to jump into this, you know, uh, process quickly. You know, we see that a lot. It might take years to to come around to accepting this as the treatment that's necessary. I mean, in some situations, it's clear and it's accepted easily. Sometimes it, as you know, takes a lot of thinking and processing. But then we might find that, you know, that couple, you know, they want to do it tomorrow. And this is a process that I think shouldn't be rushed, like should speak to a social worker like you, should speak to your doctor, should really think through, you know, what are your goals and does it make sense to work with a frozen egg bank or does it make sense to wait and find a fresh donor if, if your clinic offers that and the time, although it's deferring and delaying what hopefully will inevitably be a good outcome. At that point, we don't think it really affects the success like a few months here or there, assuming again, someone's healthy and, and it's safe and their uterus has been checked and, and we think it's normal. So, so that would be, you know, my advice to really think it through and not choose donor egg bank because it's quicker and might save a couple of months if it's really the best option. I mean, that's a, a good advantage of it, but think through really like what your goals are. How many, how many children do you think you might want? For some people, having 10 extra embryos is overwhelming and they don't want to be in that situation. And that's another you know example where getting six eggs is more manageable you, you, if you really feel like you would want to transfer all the embryos eventually. Those are such great points. Really, really wonderful. And I guess that's a good place for us to wind down because uh, I think it's really important for people to kind of hear this idea that they really need to think this through. And I think you've raised so many important things for the people to think about and for them to consider as they're moving along in this process and choosing who they want to use as a donor and if they're going to use testing or not and to kind of think in the long term. And yeah, like I said earlier, I mean, thank you for, you know, speaking to our patients and kind of helping them identify what their priorities and goals are and then being available later on when when it comes time to, you know, explain to their children where they came from. So it's, I think, important. Most clinics require that type of counseling, again, not as like a way of weeding people out, but more to just, again, make sure everyone really thinks through the process and and comes to the right, you know, decision for which path is best for them. That's great. And I thank you so much for coming today and for being a fantastic resource for the audience. And where can people reach you if they want um, to reach out? Yeah, that's a good point. Thank you. So, so yeah, so I am at Columbia University Fertility Center. We're in Manhattan in New York. We also have an office in White Plains. 
We have 14 amazing doctors with varying interests and backgrounds. So I think you could find someone that's a good fit. Our website is columbiafertility.org and our phone number is 646-756-8282. I also have social media presence. So feel free to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, Eric Foreman MD. And I think that's a great way to try to get, you know, positive messages and, and educate our patients, um, you know, about new developments in this field. Yeah. So that's great. Look forward to seeing some of you. Thanks. And thank you so much for coming today. And for all of you that are out there, I hope you reach out to Dr. Foreman with questions. And certainly you can also reach out to me and find me on familybuilding.net and certainly subscribe because that's how we keep going and how you can always make sure that you know which episode is coming up next. So until next time, I'll see you and good luck.